picture this. It's your senior year and your parents tell you that you'll be finishing up your high school career in Paris. Yes, I said Paris. You get there and almost immediately find yourself a group of fun, welcoming friends, and a swoon-worthy love interest. You wander your way through the city of love, eat lots of pastries, and see tons of movies in cool French theaters, which is convenient since you dream of becoming a film critic. Sounds pretty perfect, right? You would think, but it's not totally smooth sailing for Anna Oliphant, the star of Anna and the French Kiss, the debut novel by Stephanie Perkins published in 2010. Anna is not that excited about her dad's mandate that she moved to Paris for her senior year. And when she arrives, things get kind of messy kind of fast. When she finds herself in a love triangle with her new friend, Etienne St. Clair, and his girlfriend, Ellie. She also misses her bestie back home and Toph, the boy she was crushing on before she left. We get into all of the complicated messiness on this episode, and we cover lots of other interesting subjects too, including the sexism inherent in criticisms of romance novels, National Novel Writing Month, the problematic nature of a cheating love interest, the amazing cast of characters in Anna and the French Kiss, our dream Netflix adaptation of the book, and our thoughts on St. Clair as Anna's love interest. Today's guest is a romance author herself, so she brings us into the mechanics of writing a love story, and it is very cool. Let me introduce you to her. Alana Quintana Albertson has written 30 romance novels, rescued 500 death row shelter dogs, and danced 1,000 rumbas. She lives in sunny San Diego with her husband, two sons, and too many pets. Most days, she can be found writing her next book in a beachfront cafe while sipping on oat milk Mexican mocha or gardening with her children in their backyard orchard and snacking on a juicy blood orange. Alana's latest romance, which you'll hear more about later in this episode, is called Ramon and Julieta and is now available. Follow her on Instagram and TikTok at author Alana Albertson. If you're not already, you can also follow SSR on social media. I am not quite cool enough to be on TikTok, at least not yet, but the pod is on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. We just started a new month of the free SSR book club last week, and it's not too late to join in with our discussion about Charlotte's Web. Our volunteer leaders are amazing, and if you've ever wanted a good excuse to revisit the books you loved when you were growing up, just like I do on the podcast, the SSRBC is for you. Sign up at no cost at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you're loving the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Five-star ratings really help new listeners find their way to the show, which we love. You can also help me spread the word on social media. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. If you want to lend a little extra support to SSR, I would love to have you in our Patreon community. As a patron, you'll contribute a few dollars every month to this independent podcast's production in exchange for exclusive rewards. If I do say so myself, the rewards are awesome, and the people you'll connect with are even cooler. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash SSRPodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Episode 180 is brought to you by Kensington's newest title, A Letter to Three Witches by Elizabeth Bass. It's a magic-filled rom-com, sort of a mix between bewitched and practical magic from an author whose previous work has earned lots of acclaim. Elizabeth Bass is known for writing warm, quirky novels, and I don't know about you, but I think that sounds like the perfect vibe for a wintry romance. You can find A Letter to Three Witches by Elizabeth Bass wherever books are sold. Find out more at kensingtonbooks.com. Find your next great audiobook from Libro FM. When you shop with Libro FM instead of a larger company, you're supporting independent bookstores, which I think always feels great. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Happy listening! Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. 
Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Alana. Welcome to SSR. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. We have already been having such a lovely chat before we even started recording. We're spending our Sunday afternoon together, which is such a treat. And it's even more of a treat, I think, because we're talking about Anna and the French kiss. It's almost Valentine's Day as this episode is dropping. So it feels like the right vibe. Absolutely. And romance is always the best option. So (laughs) yeah, I'd love to know why you decided that this was the book you wanted to go with. You mentioned before we started recording that you have read this book before. So I'm curious, like what that experience was like, and why you wanted to dive in again for this episode. So it's really interesting, because I actually, you know, purchased my copy of this when right when it came out, you know, it's the original hardcover. When it came out in 2010, I was writing YA. And I think I was the president of the RWA YA chapter. So I was just reading all YA. And I absolutely loved it. I've been to France three times. I speak some French, some is the operative word. And to me, it was just so wonderful to go to France through the eyes of this young girl in high school, in a boarding school, and kind of to fall in love. I think that's everyone's fantasy of France and this, you know, the city of light. And so at the time, that is why I picked up the book. And then of course, now I write romance. Um, So it was very interesting for me to go back as a romance author, because back then I wasn't writing romance, I was writing, I went from Chiclet, which was my first love, that's dead, maybe we'll bring it back. (laughs) But um, that was how I started writing. And then I got into YA, and then I got into romance. So at the time that I read this, I didn't really know about anything of how to write romance in the romance conventions. And now that kind of changes my view of this book, but I still absolutely love this book. And I remember reading it at the time. So it was really interesting to revisit it now from more of a writer's perspective than kind of like the, oh my gosh, I love this book type perspective. Well, when I made the suggestions to you about the books we might cover today, I was secretly hoping that you would pick this one, knowing that <laughs> I you're felt a romance that. author. <laughs> yeah, I felt the vibe. And at the time, I think I knew that the episode was probably going to come out around this time. So I was like, we can time this. It's going to be so perfect for Valentine's Day. And I also, again, like knowing you were a romance author, I was like, I really want to get into this with Alana and get a sense for how you take this now that you are like deep in this world. And I hadn't thought about this before, but it, I think it's sort of fun to mention and and I'd love to get your take on it. So as most listeners know at this point, I'm in the second year of an MFA program. Oh, I didn't know this. This is amazing. Which one? at Temple University in Philadelphia. Okay, great. Yeah, I've heard that one's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I'm having a great experience. But at the beginning of this past semester, you know, we were all coming back from summer break. And one of the first year students, when it was her turn to introduce herself to the group and share about what she'd been reading, she sort of was like a little bit shy about the fact that she'd spent her summer reading romance novels. And, you know, I read very widely. And and I was like, great, like, it's kind of refreshing in an MFA program, actually, to have somebody who's not talking a big game about these like very particular kinds of literary fiction works. And the professor said, can you please say that louder? Like, can you please just like be proud about what you're reading? Yeah. And she said, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been reading all of these sort of like, I think she said tacky, like I've been reading all these like tacky, trashy. Yeah. yeah. I just needed to get lost in something because, you know, 2021. And he was like, I want you to know that romance novels are often better plotted than the literary fiction work that MFA students tend to think is quote, like the right thing to read. And so he sort of looked around at the group. He was like, if any of you find that you struggle with plotting, I want you to get into these like quote, genre types of books. Like romance is a great place to go. So um, I don't think I've ever shared that on the podcast before, but for anybody out there who feels like they have to hide their love for romance books or other quote, genre fiction, it has the best plotting out there, according to my professor. Oh my gosh. And it means so much that you said that to me. And your MFA program is amazing. There's another one in Maine that also does genre, but that was actually initially one of the reasons I didn't do my MFA was kind of the hate that I felt for romance. And one of the things that was interesting was, so I went to Stanford undergrad English and I got my master's in Harvard in education. 
and in one of my Stanford alone, and you know, you didn't talk about romance, like you talked about real books and, and like they were non real books. And, you know, we never had classes on romance, though I took, you know, I specialized in Arthurian romances. So I was like trying to like, you know, do it, but I had never mentioned in my Stanford alumni magazine, kind of my writing, but this is um, Ramona Julieta is my first traditionally published novel, but it's my 30th novel, all romance. And those were all indie published. And right before the book was announced, someone in my alumni magazine had written, you know, in her alumni notes that she spent her summer reading trashing novels, right? And I lost my mind. And I wrote the person and I, mean, I wrote the alumni magazine. I, I'd never done an update. And I, oh, I had done updates like family, but not like my work. And I was like, if you're interested in trashy novels, I'm your girl. And then I was like, actually, romance is a billion dollar industry with all these amazing and I like went off. And then they like contacted me. And they're like, what do you want? And I'm like, well, you know, I constantly get asked, you know, when are you gonna write a real book? And I'm and I just was like, to me, that's misogynist. And I remember this, I was watching a Today Show interview with this romance author, sorry, I don't remember who and the interviewer was like, you know, are you embarrassed by what you write? And she was like, Oh, yeah, I don't tell people. And I was like, please put me on that. I would be like, would you ask a man that why would it be embarrassed about empowering women? And having I mean, this is a YA book. So it's a little different, but like, you know, romance, having a positive sexual, you know, experience, you know, that that and I lost my mind. So anyway, this is kind of my thing. Like my platform is like, romance is amazing. I love romance. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. One more anecdote on this before we jump into Anna and the French kiss, because I think that you will have an equally like eye rolling reaction to this story. So there's a very narrow window in 2021 in which I was flying on planes. Yeah. And um, I was on a plane and I was sitting next to this man. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like trying to make conversation with me. I was reading. I wanted to be left alone. And you could tell he was just like a guy who loves to talk to people on planes. And right, I think right. he had just like come back from like a 65th birthday golfing trip or something, which he told me all about. And he was like showing me photos. And I was like, oh, I don't, gosh. I, I'm not interested. Yeah. And he saw that I was wearing my temple shirt and we were flying back to Philly. So he's like, oh, yeah, temple. Like I went there and I was like, yeah, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So did like <laughs> half the population of Philadelphia. Right. And so he was asking me about my program and I told him and I told him that I'm a writer and he's like, oh, that's pretty cool. He's like, but you know, and then he kind of like laughed. He's like, all the money is in those books for women, you know? Yeah. And I was like, Horrible. okay, bye. And I like <laughs> put my headphones in and I was like, I made an effort to be nice. And like, I'm done with you because you like his condescension about the whole thing was just so infuriating. And like, it doesn't even matter what I write or don't write. No. Because people just shouldn't say things like that. It's so disrespectful. No, don't shame your reading. Yeah, no. And, no. and just, you know, just the kind of, but when a male literary novel writes like some romancing, they're like, oh, it's and it's like, that's not romance. Or, you know, you read their sex scenes and they're just like, not saying all, oh, there's so many incredible male authors. I'm not trashing anyone, but everyone can write and read what they want. And it's just so weird that uh, romance carries a lot of the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, I at some point want to write different type of books, but I will always write romance. I will always write romance. I, I love it. Yeah. And I think Anna and the French Kiss is a great entry point for yeah. young readers who might eventually grow to love all types of fiction and especially romance. It was published in 2010, written by Stephanie Perkins. This is a fun fact that I didn't know. I, I did read this book, I think, when I was in my early 20s. I would have been 20 when it came out. So I yeah. was no longer like in the YA world, but I did read it, I think, because I was working in publishing. And this was at the time like one of the very hot titles. And so I wanted to kind of like know what all the fuss was about. And I I didn't know that it was written during National Novel Writing Month. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did know that because I knew that she had said it and I thought it was such a great example for young writers and not young writers, but like newbie writers to be like, you can actually write a book and work on it. And one of the most amazing things I think about Nano is people, you know, complete the book. And so when you talk to writers and they're like, oh, I can't do this or my first thing. And this has been one of my long term struggles when I used to write I would write and rewrite the first pages over and over again. And I wouldn't finish the book and you can't nope. fix it. Yeah, I'm not, my first chapters were like incredible, but I could not get through it. And to just get that book done. Um, but I also think there's kind of this perception that at the end of Nano, you have this incredible published book. And that is not true. You have a draft. And again, I had no idea, but it's like you take that book, you finish it, you're so proud of you. And then you can go back and fix it and you can't get 
into this debilitating cycle of like editing and re-editing and you can move forward. But what nano does is it forces you to finish. And once it's done, no matter what it looks like, you can mold it like clay. You just have to do the work. So to me, writing is beautiful and fun and freeing. Editing, editing, editing for me, you know, yeah. So if you saw my first draft and if anyone reads my books, they're like, oh, I could never write the, you know, but that book has so many hands, my incredible editors, my team, like, you know, me going back with the first draft, let's not talk about that, but it was done, right? But we get to that point. So yeah, I found an interview with Stephanie Perkins, I think in Publishers Weekly, and I'll link to it in the show notes listeners, if you want to check it out. But she talks about her experience with Nano. And apparently the first draft of Anna and the French Kiss, of course, was written during Nano, but the first drafts of Isla and Happily Ever After and Lola and the Boy Next Door were also written during Nano. Oh, I didn't and know that. Yeah, so she kind of like stuck with this rhythm. And she Love talks her. in this interview about how like, she realized that this was always going to be the roughest of the rough draft for her. Love and her. she thinks that nano is a great tool for aspiring writers to just gain confidence in their ability to get words on the page and she says like my goal during nano was never to write something that's like publishable it's always right. just to get 50,000 words on the page and I I did nano once um years ago I was probably like 23 at the time and it would clearly be years before I then was able to find like a new way to take my writing seriously. But I did try it. And I didn't end up doing anything with that draft. But it was a good reminder to me after years of not writing fiction that I could or that I like wanted to. So I would echo Stephanie Perkins, although I'm certainly not nearly as qualified to uh, dispense that kind of nano advice. Well, what, one of the things I, I, I love it about Nana, but I think there's a pressure and it's also during Thanksgiving and that people feel that if they don't complete it, they're a failure. And so, you know, to me, it's about being kind to yourself. One of the tools I use, and I always tell people this, and I think they think I'm totally insane, but there's this game called For the Words. And it's like, you are, it's like a quest type thing. And then you get like, you ha can have your own house and whatever, but by writing the words, you beat these monsters and then you can like win stuff. And it sounds ridiculous, but that's how I write. Like I sit down and I'm like, oh, I want like, you know, new hair for my little avatar. And then I have to write and beat these words and I go on these quests and it's ridiculous, but it's like gamification and it makes me want to write because even though this is my job and I should want to write every day, you don't want to write every day. Like it's a lot, I'm like, I'm like, oh, what else can I do? And so this will be like every day I have to write 444 words to not break my streak. And then possibly I can, you know, win something for my house on this game. And it it works for me. And it takes the pressure off if someone feels they can't complete Nano because it's 444 words a day to continue your streak and you win stuff. So big plug for the words. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's so cool. It's so weird. Try it out. Yeah. It's that, like, that's I like such it. a practical tip yeah. for writers out there and yeah. listeners for those who don't know national novel writing month or nano as we've been referring to it is it takes place in november it's an annual thing it's really become like in some ways like a social media movement online community absolutely the idea is to write fifty thousand words throughout the month of november which for a lot of people can be a novel that's ready to go i think for most is really like a vehicle for getting words on a page as we said so if you have not heard of nano and if you have dreams of being a writer i would definitely go check it out because it's a good way to kind of get your butt in gear if that's something you're interested in. But let's talk about Anna. Yes. So Alana, you had read Anna and the French Kiss before, but I guess I just kind of want to know what your first impressions of this character were when you were reintroduced to her for this reread. I have a lot of feelings about her that I feel I like I need to sort through. So let's do that together. Okay. Yeah. So again, when I got the email and I was so excited and I was like, I love this book. I remember loving this book and I still love this book. To be clear, it's got all, you know, the full, the girl in France. And if anyone's just seen Emily in Paris. Um, so I was like enjoying it from that perspective again and everything. However, I think the biggest thing that I didn't even remember versus now, and this is YA, so it's different. A lot, a lot of YA is a love triangle and things like that. But in romance, and again, I was not writing, or I would say even really reading romance in 2010. I was, again, reading Chicklet and YA. YA romance, sure, but a lot of different type of YA. But the male love interest in here has a girlfriend. And as a romance writer, cheating, we don't do that, right? Like that's, and you'll, you will get slayed in 
comments and reviews and stuff if you're loving it, you know. And so to me, that was something that I really struggled with this time because I wanted to see the relationship develop and everything. And we always had this girl and then it felt, and then she had a guy back home. And so that was really hard for me. I have other things, but that was the first thing that I was like, ah, and I don't know. I knew that going into it, but I guess I didn't feel it or something. I don't know. So that was really tough for me now is this romance writer. I'm like, we can't cheat. We can't cheat. I can't read this. I can't. Yeah. I mean, that was tough. And I, I will say there are a lot of rave reviews of this book online, but I did find one pretty searing review uh, written in 2017 on a website called Affinity. And it's called Why Anna and the French Kiss is so problematic. And the whole review is about this cheating thing. Um, yeah. And I'll read a couple of quotes from that review. It says, on the surface, ATN, who is the love interest, also known as St. Clair, may seem like a, quote, dream boy. But once you get past the attractive exterior, there's not much to like about him. What mainly bothers me about him is the fact that he is falling in love with Anna while he still has a girlfriend. This novel basically promotes emotional cheating. She is basically Absolutely. letting a large group of teenagers know that it's okay to cheat on your significant other as long as you love the person you're cheating on them with. Everyone seems to let ATN get away with this because they ship Anna and ATN. Anna also hates Ellie, ATN's girlfriend, who has never done a single thing to Anna to make her hate her other than being ATN's girlfriend. So not only does this promote female hating, it makes the reader hate Ellie as well, when in reality, the reader should hate ATN for messing around with other girls and emotionally abusing his girlfriend. And that is exactly what I thought I could have written that. And I was struggling, I was struggling because I was like, you know, as a as an author, you never want to talk. I always want to promote books. But when I was struggling that that's exactly how I felt like I felt like, okay, so we're just totally excusing his behavior. He was also displaying some codependent type behavior where he didn't actually like his girlfriend, but he didn't want to be alone. So until he kind of locked on Anna as his girlfriend, he didn't want to leave her. So it was like he just needed someone. And it was like, as a woman or as any any gender, or whatever, any partner, I want that person to want to be with me, not just to be alone, right? Like, cause it's like, I mean, the pandemic's been tough. I, I'm married, I've been married for 16 years, but I'm, I feel like you should actually want to be that with that person. You should just not want the companionship, which I do understand people want, but that's kind of what also stuck to me was like, does he even like her? It's just like, now she's more around him, his girlfriend's elsewhere. And so it's easier for him to be with her. But in addition, I'm not gonna give Anna a full pass because she got very mad at her friend because her, and I wouldn't, X is a strong word, not even boyfriend. She kissed Toph. Yeah, like once. Once! And yeah. he seems cool. I like him. He's in a band and her friend's there. He's, she's taking care of her little brother. And she's like so mad at them. But it's like she's gone, right? She's right. in Paris. Like, I want to be in Paris. Like, and I don't know. So that kind of bothered me too. Because I was like, she was so angry about that. Yeah, but meanwhile, she was having feelings for St. Clary Tan. There's so much to unpack here. Let's go. <laughs> There's so much to unpack. So I do think that for me, what was maybe the most off-putting about this love triangle of sorts, I guess, right. is Ellie and the fact that Ellie is not off screen. No. Um, not that it would have been like, quote, okay for totally. ATN to be cheating on Ellie if we didn't see her. But the fact that she is kind of on the periphery of this friend group the whole time. Right. And Anna like actively hates her. Right. was really disturbing to me. And I found another blog post on a website called Den of Geek, which I'll link in the show notes as well. But this post basically talks about like what YA property Netflix should adapt next. After oh, I saw that. Of, oh, did you? Yeah. It's actually a great article really it interesting was. um and it reflects on the success of to all the boys i've loved before and argues right. that anna and the french kiss and then the companion novel should be the next adapted for netflix and um they mention emily in paris which you mentioned as well and sort of like let's ride the coattails of emily right. in paris but it also talks about how there are of course all of these other opportunities to sort of bring anna and the french kiss up to date up to our 2022 standards so of course diversifying the cast of characters i was just gonna say that that was the next thing yeah would be huge and also this writer points out that it would be really an improvement if we did not see Anna hating Ellie. So the suggestion made in this blog post is basically to somehow shift the mechanics of the story so that even if this like emotional cheating thing is going on, maybe Anna is like concerned about Ellie or like has some empathy for her instead of just being hateful about her or toward her from the very beginning of the story. 
Yeah, um, well, my, my book got optioned. And so one of the things that's interesting in that process is that once your book's optioned, you don't have the control anymore and they could make all these amazing changes. The issue when you have, when you're adapting a beloved book that uh, so many people have read it is then you get kind of the purists who are like, that's not what happened. That's not yeah. what, you know, whatever. And so there are two trains of thought. Do you want to create a brand new intellectual property or do you want to adapt something and then get the hate when they say that it's, you know, kind of not real, but yeah, I mean, the definitely thing I wanted to touch on also is, you know, the lack of diversity, both racially, but also having characters, especially this is a high school of different orientations and, you know, things like that. Like it was very like kind of, you know, white heterosexual novel, you know, like, and so, um, but I mean, it was written in 2010, but reading it now, you know, I, I felt, you know, it was just this complete bubble and it's in France. It's American school of France, plus kind of an elitist type situation for the parents to, you know, and so it would be incredibly interesting to see how an adaption would change that. And then I also didn't like that, that kind of, I loved Meredith and then Meredith liked him too. And then like, so this full like lack of female friendship, which is something that I really kind of wanted. And then, you know, them her getting Anna getting mad. I don't know, like, so that kind of didn't vibe for me also, because I wanted it to be supportive. And, you know, Meredith also had loyalties because she knew Ellie. And so just the full thing about the friend group and yeah, all that. <laughs> so. Yeah. And you, you mentioned this before, as we were beginning to unpack this whole cheating situation, but I think Anna, Anna does a lot of reflecting in this book. Sometimes I think it feels incomplete but she does do a lot of reflecting Absolutely. and she's a senior in high school so that makes sense right. like this is a time in life when I think many of us learn about ourselves and it does seem like she at some point like recognizes the hypocrisy of some of her own actions because yes. and I don't know if it like is a perfect match but she basically realizes that like her anger at her friend Bridget Brigitte right. back home who she learns is sleeping with Tof, who is her right. like former hookup, her crush, this guy that she's kind of been holding out for this whole time she's been in France. She's been freezing Bridget out this whole time. And I think at some point she does realize that like her, her like crushing on St. Clair slash ATN, like when she knows that Meredith has a crush on him and then like right. acting on that crush is like kind of the same thing. Right. So Absolutely. she, she does get it eventually. Like I think yeah. she is able to like see that she's participating in a similarly problematic quote, like love triangle. And that maybe she should have some more empathy for both Bridget and Meredith because Absolutely. they all are sort of experiencing this from a different vantage point. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And that was a good mirror. And I thought it was brilliant that Stephanie kind of put that in so she could become, you know, so you could actually see the representation of what she was feeling and have it reflected back on her by being part of the other shoe. So that does allow the forgiveness. Um, so I definitely think that she did that. Well, when you're reading it as a reader, it's kind of hard because my initial reaction, again, on the second read was, you know, she was so angry. Toph and Bridget or Bridgie and that she was going for and it took her a while to realize it I was like how are you mad like you're like talking to you know so so yeah but I mean yeah I think that's great because in high school you know you may react more before you can kind of you know tr try to take a step back and you're going through these emotions and they're big emotions plus also one of the things I love what I think is so incredible about this book is I really like setting as a character and so Paris is obviously such a big character and so by going home, it wasn't to me just that Toph and Bridget were betraying her, but it was kind of like her home was betraying her. It was like Bridget was babysitting her, her brother and it was also now with the guy that she liked. And so it wasn't just their romantic relationship. It was kind of like her past and whatever and like kind of figuring out who she was. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, home is a big theme of the book yeah, and like yeah. what home means and how home is always kind of evolving, I think, especially at this point in your life. I actually pulled out a couple of quotes or excerpts from the book that that reference home because I couldn't get over how many times it comes up in the story. And these are not necessarily like significant in terms of, of the specific moments they reference in the book. But the first one I pulled out was just for the first time in Paris, I feel at home. And then when she is back in Atlanta for Christmas, she is struggling. As we mentioned, she finds out this like really upsetting secret about her best friend in Toph. And it kind of like ruins her trip 
back to Atlanta, she actually spends most of break on the phone with St. Clair or like right. emailing him back and forth. And they sort of celebrate New Year's Eve together from across the country. And she says, and for the first time since coming home, I'm completely happy. It's strange home how I could wish for it for so long only to come back and find it gone to be wow. here in my technical house and to discover that home is now someplace different, but that's not quite right either. I miss Paris, but it's not home. It's more like I miss this, this warmth over the telephone. Is it possible for home to be a person and not a place? Bridget used to be home to me. Maybe St. Clair is my new home. I could never tell him, but it's true. This is home. The two of us. And then the last line of the book is actually, and we are finally home. Um, and that's in reference to their new like official relationship. Yeah, no, and I love that. And and now we're, you know, talking about, you know, some of the character things we don't like, but this book is beautifully written. It is. And there's a lot of moments and introspection in it that like lines like that, where I'd be like, ah, I don't want to cry. Come on and stop. Like, you know, I mean, but that's so beautiful. And I think that's the power of it. And it really kind of gets that experience of her kind of growing up and figuring out like, you know, because first she was just so focused, oh, I'm being sent away, you know, and then for her to kind of learn to experience it. So yeah, I mean, I thought that was really beautiful. So speaking of her frustration at being sent away, I want to talk about like, and I know this is a very complicated and complex and polarizing subject, but this concept of an unlikable narrator or protagonist, because I do think that Anna's initial distaste for this experience of going away to Paris for her senior year, which is something that so many people would die for. So I was like, that was like, that was my, yeah, let's talk about that. I was like, what? If you go to Paris, my parents wouldn't send me to Paris. I would right. die to go to Paris. Like, are yeah. you me right now? I went as an adult and yeah, I had no money. Like, I mean, I can't even imagine like, Heaven. Right. Yes. <laughs> so at, the, at the beginning of the book, all that we really know about Anna initially is that she's like pissed at her dad that he is making her quote, go to Paris for her senior year. And I oh, sorry, let me say one thing about the dad. So yeah. one of the things that triggered me, I have two sons, um, they're 11 and eight. And it was our hatred for her dad's books. And every time I read it, I like I was like, are my kids, you know what I mean? Because I write romance, right? So I know hers, <laughs> hers were like, my vibe was that she was saying her dad was like Nicholas Sparks, you know, yeah. it was like, kind of walk to remember a thing. So like, they fall in love, and then they they die. So not romance. So a lot of times, every time they say, Oh, you know, my favorite romance is, is Nicholas Sparks. I'm like, it's not a romance like they're dead <laughs> but yeah. that triggered me that she had all this hatred for her father's success who he had been this struggling author and he was a struggling southern author but he had no literary success and you know he wanted then he wanted you know and you make that decision I love what I write but you know you make a decision in publishing if you want to go into genre fiction and you know kind of do something more marketable definitely when I was indie there was a way to success, which was romance versus kind of writing that dream book that not necessarily will get picked out. So that really triggered me. So, but as an author, that had nothing to do with that. But I was like, what, don't you understand? He's trying to like live his dream. But anyway, yeah, so sorry. But that was- No, I, <laughs> I think that's a great point. I loved the detail of yeah. this of this dad. I actually think a lot of this like secondary characters were really well drawn Wonderful. and sort of had like really unique things about them. Yeah. Um. So I loved the idea of this like middle-aged man in the South who's like been working really hard at becoming an author and ultimately like the thing that makes him successful is these like Nicholas Sparks-esque novels. It. Right. I love that level of detail and the fact that he wants to sort of like revel in his new financial success presumably right. by giving his daughter the opportunity to go study at this like pretty highbrow school in Paris. It's called the School of America in Paris aka yeah. so Soap which so, is like such a like teen way to to, like, and to to shorten something. But yeah, Anna's mad. And I think part of it is that like her, her parents are divorced. She feels very abandoned by her father. And so I think anything that he might suggest or enforce in any way is probably going to be triggering for her in a very teen way. Like she's just going to push back on anything that he does. But I would argue that at least for an adult reader, the fact that like our initial introduction to Anna is that she's like, mad that she has to go to Paris poor girl, poor girl right makes her an unlikable narrator and I know that like and as a writer I struggle with even having this conversation because I love to write unlikable narrators and I think Fun. we we need <laughs> unlikable protagonists in fiction I also think likability in itself is a very complicated subject especially for women and girls so I want to be careful about that but I think sort of 
if we're stepping back and looking at it in the broadest possible terms, this like 17, 18 year old girl who like is sort of throwing a tantrum because she has to go to Paris for a year. Like at the beginning, I was like, I don't know if I like you. No, not, and, and the lack of kind of acknowledgement of her privilege. I mean, she does briefly, she does say, I understand it. It's amazing and whatever, but it's like you were in Paris, like, you know, some kids don't have enough to eat, you know, they don't ever, you know, and just you're, you're literally in Paris. So that was so infuriating that that kind of lack of awareness, I would have totally understood like kind of the scare, like, I am so I'm scared to death of being here. I don't speak France. Everyone's going to hate me. That to me would be, you know, whatever. So yeah, that was that was a struggle for me as well. Like definitely. And again, these are all things that I don't know if I felt in 2010. I, I'm like trying to go. I'm like, I was trying to when I was reading like, what I loved it in 2010. So it was like, did I not get any of this stuff either? So it was really interesting to me because when I was like so excited and I was like, oh, wait, 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 oh, wait, wait. So it was very interesting to see me read it. So yeah, because I was I'm 45. Now I was 35 when I read it. Uh, okay. or 34. So um, I think I, yeah, I had like two kids under the age of like, two. Yeah, so you're like, take me to Paris. Take me to Paris. Like, let's go. <laughs> like, this is gonna be a blast. Yeah. Yeah. And I was able to to sort of find in my heart a little bit of empathy for her when I read this line. She says, I never asked to be sent here. I had my own friends and my own inside jokes and my own stolen kisses. I wish my parents had offered me the choice. Would you like to spend your senior year in Atlanta or Paris? Who knows? Maybe I would have picked Paris. What my parents never considered is that I just wanted a choice, um, which I, I get. Absolutely. I understand. But yeah. still, I'm like, girlfriend, you are really angry and you're being a little bit of a brat about this. And as a parent, um, which again, I wouldn't have known this. My parents made some decisions for me and that were actually the right ones, but I fought him. And, you know, so you don't, she might've again, chosen Atlanta. Um, and I'm not saying you, you should give your kids autonomy and allow them to be their own pe people or whatever. But, you know, her, her dad just truly believed this would be a life-changing experience for, for him. And, you know, I, I don't know, it, you know, it's a kind of tough balance because, you know, I think you always want your kids to have opportunities that you didn't have. And so, you know, forcing them to do it is probably not the best way, but I'm, I kind of get where, what you just said, he got his new sound success and he felt like he wanted to overcompensate also because it wasn't around. And so he thought this was the thing. And so, you know, I don't know that that's interesting too. Yeah. And there is some like kind of minor excavation of this idea of privilege, even when she gets there, because it seems to me at least that most of the other students kind of come from this like quote like old money background like absolutely Anna seems to have less money than her classmates like they seem to have no worries about like going out and doing whatever they want to do in Paris and she is very aware of the fact that like she doesn't necessarily have access to the resources that they do um I sort of wish we'd gotten more of that and maybe that's just because I'm an adult but right um I was curious like how that would feel as a 17 or 18 year old to like be like okay my dad's rich now. So back home, I have, I've come into money that I didn't used to have. And she does talk a little bit about how, like, it seems like her dad doesn't necessarily like give her spending money. So maybe he's holding some of those resources close. And it, it is maybe meant to indicate that he's selfish. But it also like, I don't know, then she goes to this school where everybody else has more than she does. And so I would think that would be very just a strange experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting whenever you go into these circles. I definitely felt that at Stanford, not so much, but at Harvard, I definitely felt that like it was totally weird. I'd never met people with like the old, old money. I mean, not and I, I mean, I, I was already an adult by that point and I'd been working, but it was so weird for me to talk about, you know, the homes in the Hamptons and that we're doing this. And I remember I went on a date with one guy and I asked him what he was going to do when he was graduating. And he said he wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to get a job. And I thought, wait, wait, I don't understand. We're all in the same program. And he said, oh, my parents have money. They just want me to get the degree. I'm going to do philanthropy. And I was literally like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean you're not going to work? Like, I could not even fathom it. But I had literally, I just hadn't heard that. You know what I mean? And so it was so, I, th I think it's very interesting to unpack levels of privilege. Because, you know, definitely by that point, I definitely had a level of privilege. But I, you know, just to kind of you know, so she's coming from Atlanta, she, her dad's successful, she's going to Paris, 
and stuff. And then she, she sees this other thing where they just don't even consider the money thing. And that's just kind of a very interesting thing, especially as a young girl to kind of learn about, you know? Yeah. I had a similar experience in college also. Like I was very lucky to go to a private university and certainly had a level of privilege, but I came from the suburbs, like sort of a more rural leaning suburb. And I showed up at the city school where everybody was from like New York and Miami and LA. And there was all this talk about like designers and going to clubs. And like, I was really excited because I had my first ever North Face jacket. And like, yeah. that was a huge deal. And they're like, oh, like I have nine North Faces. So it was just, it's interesting. And I, I did relate to Anna a little bit there. This note is kind of unrelated to anything else that we might talk about. So, but I do want to make it because I really yeah. like this. I love the fact that Anna wants to be a film critic. I do too. Oh yeah, we haven't even talked about that. I loved it. And I loved, I'm from the Bay Area. Um, and I, and at the end he goes to Berkeley and she goes to San Francisco State. So I love that, you know, she talks about that, you know, for the film um, program or whatever. So I, I absolutely love that. And that, you know, in the book that they go to movies. And so I, I just, I, I thought that that was great. I absolutely loved her interest in that. Yeah. And there's a moment where she's talking to her friends about why she wants to be a critic instead of like a director or a producer. And there's some commentary about how like people think that women can't make it as critics right. because right. they're too nice. Yeah. And it's like too cutthroat of a world. And so I love that. I've actually, I don't think I've ever read a book in which anybody wants to be a film critic, let alone a teen girl. So I thought that was cool. It was neat that she had a blog, like especially back in 2010. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Like, I was like, you have a website? I didn't have a website in 2010. I was like, you were awesome. That's exactly, I had that exact same thing when she when I read that line. Yeah, I thought it was such a cool thing because you're yeah. right, you don't read that. We read about the girl wants to be the actor, the dancer, you know what I mean? So I thought that was so awesome. Yeah, it was also a really smart writing choice, I think, on behalf of Stephanie Perkins, because while Anna has a lot of trouble kind of opening up to the experience of being in Paris at first, because she doesn't really want to be there, the way that she finally gains confidence in going out into the city is by going to movie theaters. And she starts exploring her neighborhood by going to different movie theaters. St. Clair tells her that this is like the film capital of the world. And she learns about how the film industry operates in Paris. And she slowly gets a little bit more confident in exploring other parts of Paris and going to those movie theaters. It helps her get to know her new friends because she like invites them to join her to see different kinds of movies. So I think also just in terms of characterization and setting, it was really smart of Stephanie Perkins to include that detail because it just felt very natural. I, I loved it. Um, and I've seen a movie in Paris. Um, and it was a American movie. And I mean, I just remember that experience of, of seeing it there and then the subtitles. And then the other thing that but of course, since I had just binged Emily in Paris, I while the entire time I was reading it, I was thinking of that French movie that she was seeing that Emily saw that that was like very weird. <laughs> she was like, Oh, my God. So I, I love that detail. I loved it. I, I love that full part of her. And I, yeah, I thought it was an incredible choice. Yeah, it was a nice through line. Um, and I, I will say too, like, as we see her gain confidence and starting to, to see more parts of the city, as much as I struggled getting to know her, I guess, at the beginning, because I was frustrated with her, just like kind of bratty behavior about going to Paris, it became pretty clear that like a lot of her anger and frustration at, at the situation was sort of just like masking her own self doubt and yeah. insecurities and that she like, she was scared to be in a place where she couldn't find her way around and where she didn't know everybody. And so maybe like some of her resistance and pushback to going to Paris for the year was really just like a cover for her fears. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, of course, wanted her to embrace it even more. I and mean, when she kind of got into it with food too, she was struggling in French class. So I wanted her to like, it, it, but that's my criticism. I, I can, sorry, I keep bringing up Emily in Paris. But like, I want, I feel like I wanted the character to just like, want to full on immerse themselves in the culture. But I mean, that's me reading into it. So I understand there's a different perspective of it. But yeah, it's her love of movies, though, that ultimately gets her past her resistance to the Absolutely. experience and embracing what's going on. So we've talked a little bit already about her relationship with St. Clair and our complicated feelings about it, which I stand by. I stand by them all. I do, too. I'm not I'm not. Yeah, I'm a romance writer. I can't I can't romance reader. I, I can't handle it. I, <laughs> we're not backing down. We're not. No. But there was another aspect or maybe a few other aspects that I wanted to ask you about as a romance writer. So, of course, she meets St. Clair her first day on campus um, after she meets her neighbor, Meredith. She then runs into St. Clair in the hallway and she's like, oh, he's so cute. But she's still at this point like 
still digging Toph back home. And so for a while, she's like resisting her feelings for St. Clair because she's so fixated on this boy back home. And she is more respectful early on about Ellie. I found a range of opinions online about kind of how long this will they or won't they thing goes on in the book. Um, Some people seem to think that it was like just the right amount of time for all of this to go on. Some people felt like it was a little bit too drawn out. Do you feel like it went on for too long, Alana? Yeah. So this is the most interesting question, because one of the things as a romance writer, you'll always get, you'll say, oh, this is insta love, you know, and that's, you don't want to write that because you want to slowly do it. And I even, you know, with Ramona Julieta, like that's a Romeo and Juliet retelling. Like I was supposed to, that was on purpose. Like (laughs) it was supposed to be non, you know, like at least insta lust. So my initial thought on this was it was an insta lust with her and Etienne. And then it was a slow burn because of the relationship. But to me, the artificial, well, it's not, he was in a relationship and she liked Toph. But to me, that's an artificial device versus the slow burning of the relationship. And obviously, as a romance writer, I would have preferred that they were both totally single. Right. And that then you would have seen kind of that gradual thing because by the time that they're actually together, the book's almost over. And so one of the things I plot, like I never actually, I never used to plot. I was like a pantser and then I was total hardcore plotter. And one of my uh, freelance editors that I've used in my indie career, um, who I'm obsessed with, Gwen Hayes, she wrote Romancing the Beat, and she talks about the romance beats. And so, you know, to me, I have with all of my books, very serious plot points of where they fall, and then their retreat, and then they're back. And so I did miss that kind of push and pull that wasn't type artificial because, oh, well, now it's based on his relationship with her or based on that versus based on their interior and exterior goals. So um, again, though, I was trying to be, it's a, this is a YA romance, but it was very just more like kind of YA. And so with an actual romance book, I think I would have been kind of a lot more critical about that. But yes, like I felt that the pacing, I wouldn't necessarily say it was off because it was YA and based on the circumstances, that's the way it was. And I do enjoy a slow burn and they're harder to write, but I felt it was a bit of an artificial slow burn due to the the other people in the relationship that should have been there. <laughs> yeah, because if the other people hadn't been involved, then they would have started dating immediately. Where where was that first kiss if it hadn't been like so if let's say let's take up Toph and Ellie and so they meet and you know and then what would another reason be that they broke up like an emotional reason because you would have had that moment right so it wouldn't have been based on the other person so you know they would have gotten together maybe they broke up because externally they decided not to go to school near each other though maybe they had an emotional thing where he needed her more and she wanted to retreat emotionally so we tried to do internal and external reasons Uh, like your deepest fear comes back to haunt you or whatever. Or maybe he, she got sick and that reminded him of his mom. So he retreated. I mean, whatever that, that's what, as a romance writer, why we think, okay, why, why, why am I going to destroy this couple Mm -hmm. externally and internally? I want to make you weep. Um, That's my goal. I'm a non nice. (laughs) So anyway, so all of that, I, I, I was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, like we've talked about the emotional cheating and it is hard to remove that from the equation but to the extent that you can what do you think of Etienne slash St. Clair as a romantic lead I mean he does have these other kind of interesting dynamics happening in his life we find out about a third of the way through the book that his mother has been diagnosed with stage four cancer right we find out a bit later on that he has a very difficult relationship with his father who it's it's implied pretty heavily is abusive in some form, if not physically, certainly emotionally and mentally, potentially physically, it's sort of hard to say all of it's terrible. It doesn't, you know, it's all bad. It's all bad. Um, (laughs) It's all bad. And I just, I do think he's like a nuanced guy. What do you think of him as this love interest as the leading man? Initially, I, I found him very like kind of cookie cutter, like super good looking. And like, I didn't really know kind of, who he was internally, I, he grew on me and I liked his personality and I liked how he kind of brought her out, you know, through a lot of the Paris scenes. Um, well, I mean, obviously it's in Paris, but through a lot of the like walking around, like being in town. Um, I wanted more. So the two things that you just mentioned, both the mother and the father, I mean, again, those are very external influences. I really wanted more kind of like an internal thing of kind of, I mean, we do definitely learn that he's codependent on Ellie and he doesn't want to be alone. Um, so I, I'd love getting to know that, but I, I kind of wanted them to have 
some type of deep connection that kind of pulled them besides just that physical thing. And so I'm not going to blame just him on that or whatever. Um, also it's first person present. Uh, we don't get his point of view. Yeah. And so one of the things that I employ as an author is all, I want to say all, all my books, all my books are dual point of view. Okay. Um, and so that really allows you to go deep into the hero or the other love interests mind and to kind of get those things. So I'm not going to say that they weren't there, but you know, just from her point of view, we only can kind of see, see what she sees. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, but overall I did like him. It took me a while in the beginning. I was just like, okay, he's hot. He's cute. And that, you know, he's, he's in Paris, but he's British and he's American, you know? So it was like that kind of like two perfect things. I thought it was interesting that he was hot, but also we are constantly reminded that he's short. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. I love that too. Yeah. It's like he's hot, but not too hot. Like he's right, not right. hot and six feet, two inches. He's hot and like short. Like it, I, even when Anna makes the connection that this guy that she sees out in the world is Etienne's father, it's because he's short. She's like, oh, well, if he's short, that means he has to be Etienne's father. There are no other short men in Paris. <laughs> no, and I really love that. And I want to see yeah. that more in romance. Um, you know, I spend too much time on TikTok. I'm hoping my, my editor, if you're listening to this, <laughs> so writing, like, I, I don't really post, but I, but you know, all the, I'll, I'll scroll and you'll see, you know, women are like, I love this guy, but, but he's short, but you know, and it, and to me, I'm the mother of two sons. I mean, I don't know, you know, it, it's heartbreaking, like that, it, you know, judged uh, on that, you know, because that's something you can't control, you know what I mean? Your height um, at all. He's not so perfect. I think there are like, I'm so happy there have been ongoing conversations now for a long time about body diversity Absolutely. in the way that women especially are presented in Absolutely. pop culture. And I do think the conversation about the way men, and of course we're talking about this in a very binary way. Right, right, right. I think it is, it's nice to see that there is some expansion of that conversation beyond the way women and girls are portrayed. So I liked that he was short and that was kind of I his, like, I, his I like work. It. <laughs> it was unexpected. Yeah. yeah, no, I loved it. So I would love to see this adapted for Netflix. I will echo oh, yeah. that blog post that I mentioned. I, for the most part, really enjoyed this read. It was quick. I loved the references to Paris. My husband and I have been talking about going to Paris once that feels like a safe and doable possibility. And this made me want to go even more. Alana, I'm curious, sort of on the whole, how this rereading experience compares to what you remember from the book the first time you read it, both in terms of just like the way you have grown as a reader and a writer, but also like how it ages between 2010 and 2022. Um, I always think it's incredibly critical. And I think, you know, that we need to look at the lens of when it was published when we're, you know, look at the book. So I stand by that I it sparked joy. I loved it then. I still love it now. Um, obviously, we're discussing it. And we're having this amazing discussion about it. And we're critical about different elements. And now, you know, kind of as a writer and things like that. And now, you know, it's 21 or 22. Oh, my gosh, five years, right? What is <laughs> what time? Happened? What is right? time? <laughs> you know, and so it's different. But one of the beauties when I was indie published is I can go back and I can change my books, right? Yeah. If you're trad published books, you can't, right? And so they're out there and they're kind of solid in time. Um, with the indie books, I could rewrite a draft to go, oh gosh, let's change it, you know? Yeah. And so um, I think it's very important to look at the book, you know, kind of in that lens. And, that, and I, I still love it. Um, I love the Paris. I love the romance. I love the, you know, girl coming of age thing. I love that it ends, uh, or I love that they're going to end up in my hometown of San Francisco. I'm from Rin. So I, I love all of it this time. Of course, I'm definitely more critical as a writer, um, and just being older and whatever. Um, I also would love to see it on Netflix and I'm confident that if a producer optioned it, I don't know if it's optioned, but I'm confident that the writer's room would make the changes to bring it in to now. Um, and I would be hopeful that readers who, you know, then would pick it up now weren't too critical of of it in, in 2010. I'm not excusing anything on it, but we're just constantly evolving and changing. And I think they could do an incredible job with it. So yeah, I would like to see a version of this that retains all of the magic of Paris and all of the complexity of the characters. This is a tremendous cast of characters, but also adds a little bit of diversity or That's a lot of diversity, diversity a lot. and creates a situation where Anna isn't immediately pitted against another girl over a boy. I do think that there are moments in the book where it tends toward this like boy crazy trope where like all right. of Anna's decisions and actions come down to her crushes at, and right. depending on like who she's into at that moment 
moment, there's actually right. a line somewhere that actually like that explicitly says, I need to stop bringing everything back to ATN. And I made a yeah. note that was like, yes, I wish we would do that too. Yeah. Can we talk about somebody else? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I, I would like to see a version that maybe tones that down a bit but also like gives Anna the chance to stand up for herself. She does start to do that at the end of the book. Like we see her starting to make bolder decisions. She pushes back with ATN a few times, like while they're sorting out their stuff, he like goes on and on about how he's been lonely. He's afraid to be lonely. And she's like, why are you lonely? I've been here all along. Right. right. Um, she stands up for her friend Meredith and like has a lot of integrity in that situation. So we see her kind of coming out of her shell. And I think an updated version of this on Netflix could go even further there. But I enjoyed the reading experience and I'm so glad that we got to talk about the book. I am too. I loved it. I'm so glad to reread it. I don't even, you know, it was on my shelf and I, I was like trying to find it and I, I was I was so excited to pick it back up. Um, and it's just been so enjoyable. I think what we were saying off camera before we started is as a writer, once you're writing so much, I always think writing is reading spilling over you come to this initially from this pure beautiful love of books and eventually you want to write your own story but somewhere along the way you sometimes lose it and then your book choices you know i read books for friends or I read books to reviews blurbs books that i absolutely love but it's very very interesting to go back and read a book that you loved when you were just reading to read and you weren't you had no kind of like you know and you know even reading books in college to discuss it's kind of like a different type of mind point versus kind of like just I just want to enjoy this book. So I think it's so interesting. And I am so grateful that I had this opportunity to, to go through it and, and to go to Paris. I'd love to be back. So just what you said, between this and Emily in Paris, I was like, I need I want to go. You're practically there. Practically there. Practically there. there. Other than Anna and the French Kiss, what have you been reading lately, Alana, that you would recommend to our listeners? I just read um, The Most Amazing Book, Our Last Days in Barcelona by Chanel Clayton. It's not out yet. I believe it comes out in May. Um, if you've read her other books, they're incredible. She's a former romance author who's now writes some historical fiction with a romantic element. Um, and it's beautiful. It's set in Barcelona. Um, and she has previous books that, you know, it's about these sisters. And I loved it. The Love Hypothesis by my friend Allie. I love that book. It's Raylo fan fiction, um, kind of uplifted about this PhD student. I just incredible. So I read that. Let's see. I also am reading with my kid. My kids. I was reading Esperanza Rising, which I absolutely love. So good. So we did good. an episode so, of the podcast about. That I know. Podcast. I saw that. Yeah, I was like, oh, so why is that in mind? Okay, I love this. Yeah. But I was like, and um, so last year, um, I homeschooled my kids, and I don't, I don't mean I remote learned. I literally pulled them out to actually homeschool them because they were online all day and it was just whatever. So I read all this incredible middle grade fiction. Mm. So, you know, that was one of the highlights. I re re recently read Island of the Blue Dolphins. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I've really um, had a good reading year. Good. <laughs> well, I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes. I will also include links to, well, a link to our Esperanza Rising episode because that's one of my favorites. And Alana, as you've mentioned, as this episode drops, we are now a week past the book birthday of your new book. Can you tell us about it? I'm so excited for you. Yeah. So my book, Ramona and Julieta, it's a Romeo and Juliet retelling, uh, Mexican Romeo and Juliet retelling. I'm Mexican and I wrote it during the pandemic. So as I've mentioned, I was this indie author and I had a successful romance career, but this was always a book of my dreams, but I never, I was kind of like constantly producing and I had books and series and I just didn't have the time. And then during the pandemic, I was home and it was kind of like, you know, the book I really wanted to write. Um, and I'd been promising my agent that I would give it to her, but it's a Romeo and Juliet retelling about this very wealthy Mexican American man, Ramon, and he's kind of the head of a fast food empire, like a Taco Bell type chain. And this amazingly cool chef, Julieta Campos, and she runs a Cita table taqueria in Barrio Logan, which is a, a kind of like me Mexican ethnic neighborhood in San Diego. Um, they meet on Day of the Dead. I was obviously in a mask mode. So they're, you know, dressed up. They don't know who they, each other are. They kiss. And then the next day he gentrifies or hentifies her entire block. So he buys her entire block to, to kind of turn it into a, a taco king and displace her. And then you find out that his father stole her mother's recipe back in Mexico, her fish taco recipe back in the 70s. And so now you've got the wars, but they, they you know, they initially have this insta, I'm going to go with insta lust because they then hate each other, but it's like an insta lust connection. And then everything goes 
to hell. It's my love letter to San Diego. And yeah, I mean, it's the book of my dreams. It's been such an incredible experience um, from going from indie to trad, my editor and publisher and they've just, everything's been incredible and it's been the most wonderful experience. I'm so happy for you. And the book sounds amazing. I will make sure that listeners can get an easy link to it in the show notes for this episode. Again, lots of good stuff in the show notes, everybody. So go check those out. Alana, it has been such a treat talking with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I hope we get to connect again. Definitely. I will always love to write, read books. So <laughs> yeah. thank you so much. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.